Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than three and a half million Americans live with autism. Coming up, we'll talk with the parent of a child with autism who cautions people from using the label high-functioning to describe her child. We'll find out why. Also later, an Enfield, Connecticut woman will join us in studio. Sarah Hernandez has been elected to her town's school board, but she's also getting attention because she's been talking about her own experience living with autism. We'll hear from her in just a bit. First, what do you know about autism spectrum disorder? Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Autism is commonly diagnosed during childhood, but our next guest found out she was when she was an adult that she had autism. Laura James is a journalist and author of the new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. Uh, The book will be released in the U.S. in the spring. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. For listeners who may not know much about autism spectrum disorder, how do you define it? Um, well, I think it's, it's, it's a neurological difference, um, and there are kind of certain common traits that all autistic people experience, such as sensory difficulties, um, difficulties coping um, with some aspects of communication. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, I think autistic people simply think differently to neurotypical people. Um, but I think that, that, that we are as different as neurotypical people. So, um, so while kind of we're all sort of lumped together, under the same kind of title, there is a massive amount of difference within the spectrum. You were actually diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, but as you just uh, noted, uh, you, you, um, this diagnosis and other uh, disorders are now lumped under this autism spectrum disorder. Why the change? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Um, it changed in the DSM, um, which obviously you in America use. In the UK, we use the ICD-10 at the moment, and um, and Asperger's still exists within that, although it probably will come into line with the DSM. But I think that these things kind of evolve and change. And certainly, um, certainly, I would, if asked, I would say I was autistic rather than I have Asperger's. Mm. Your diagnosis came in 2015. You were 45 years old. That might be surprising to our listeners uh, who may not know that you can be diagnosed when you're an adult. How did that come, come about? Um, well, I found out initially that I had a um, genetic physical disorder, um, something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is essentially a connective tissue disorder. Um, and when I was in hospital having tests for that, a nurse who was looking after me just presumed I was autistic because of the way I was behaving. And I kind of sort of thought, oh, well, she's sort of got it wrong, you know. It's like when you go into hospital to have a minor thing done to you and then you kind of find you've had something amputated because they've got you muddled up with someone else. Um, but once I started researching and reading about autism, I really that it just kind of completely it it was a complete fit for me so I thought about it for quite a while and then I went to see um, somebody who specialized in adult autism to um, have an assessment and then I got diagnosed. You said the nurse uh, told you that because of your behavior at the hospital she thought you might have autism what did you say to her at that moment? Well, it, it, was, it was, she literally presumed I was autistic. So I'd had these really horrible tests 
I hadn't been allowed to eat all day. It was in a very hot room. They were quite invasive. Um, and then when I got back to my room in the hospital, there was meant to be, um, it sounds really ridiculous, but there was meant to be a tuna sandwich and the heating was meant to, the air conditioning was meant to be on. It was the hottest day of the year in London. Um, but instead there was no food, no water. Um, the air conditioning was broken and there was a child screaming um, and lots of kind of noise and bright lights. And I just became totally overwhelmed and had a bit of a meltdown, which kind of was really me saying, I've got to get out of here. I literally cannot stay here and kind of walking out. And then she was just like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. We should have done, you know, we should have done much better for you. We see a lot of autistic people having these tests and, you know, we should have anticipated how bad it would be for you. And so it wasn't, so, so it, it was kind of said in passing. And then we kind of moved on to sorting out the problems like kind of opening the windows and turning the lights off and things. And so it wasn't really until she'd gone and my meltdown had passed that it, it sort of kind of made me think, well, why would she say that? Uh, in your book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life, you write that in a million years you wouldn't have thought you were autistic. Well, talk, tell us about that moment and when you said you started doing research and you realized, you know what, I actually have a lot of similarities to someone who's been diagnosed. Uh, how did you move forward? Well, I think the reason that I didn't think it was a possibility was because I didn't know that much about autism and I had completely and wholeheartedly bought into the myths and the stereotypes that exist. So when I thought of autism, I thought about Rain Man. You know, I thought about a really geeky guy who can do extraordinary things mathematically um, but can't hold a conversation, um, you know, kind of on, on a social level at all. And I'm a journalist, so I communicate for a living. So it just seemed totally unlikely to be me. But then when I started reading it, um, and I kind of, I, and I did the test, so there are some online tests you can do, and I did the test and scored really highly on them, it, it suddenly made me realize that, first of all, I didn't really know myself that well. But secondly, I had, I had really very little idea of what autism was. Now, looking back on your childhood, you write you were the odd girl out. Uh, what was difficult about growing up, Laura? Oh, literally everything. I think one of the problems with childhood for someone who's autistic is that you have no agency. You know, you are literally, from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep, in the hands of grown-ups who are going to look after you, um, but also shape everything you can do and everything you can eat and the environment that you're in. So um, so because, because those choices are taken away from you, I think it can be really quite hard for an autistic child. And for me, I found school incredibly difficult. I couldn't learn the way that they wanted to teach and the way that they, that they were teaching. Um, I had real issues around food and what I could and would, couldn't eat. And, you know, I was a child of the 70s and 80s. So um, growing up with people who'd experienced the war and food rationing and, and things like that, and so kind of wasting food was seen as almost a sin. So um, I was, you know, it was kind of you eat what you're given, and I literally couldn't eat what I was given. So that was incredibly hard. Food was a real battleground, both at school and with my parents. And I didn't really kind of, I didn't really get the other children. I didn't really understand why they did the things that they did. So when the girls in the playground were playing make-believe or playing with dolls and pretending they were babies and things, I would just look at them thinking, I, I just don't know why you're doing this. Mm. How did so, the, yeah, so it was quite hard. How did the adults respond? Did you ever hear that word autism as a child? No. Um, but I don't think that, I, I don't think it was, uh, first of all, I don't think that there was as much understanding. and Certainly there wasn't as, as much diagnosis. And I think that only people who 
um, had very, very apparent difficulties and who simply couldn't couldn't fit in um, to an ordinary educational environment in any way would be um, would be kind of seen and assessed um, and supported. But when I was growing up, children were kind of tended to be lumped into good or bad as, as a category, and that was about it. And um, and I think because I was obviously intelligent, but couldn't learn, I was just kind of put into the bad camp, really. Mm. I'm speaking with Laura James, a journalist and author of the new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. Uh, Laura was diagnosed when she was 45 years old. Um, If this describes uh, your life or or you someone that was diagnosed as an adult, we want to hear your story. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, So you mentioned that your childhood was difficult. Uh, So how did you, as a young girl, uh, cope with some of these challenges that you were having? Did you feel like you had to conform? I, I did feel like I had to conform. I remember very clearly being around five years old and being in the playground and looking at the girls around me thinking, I am nothing like you. I, I, I can't relate to you at all. But then also thinking, and the most, most important thing I can do is pretend so that nobody else will ever realize that that's the case. So, um, and I think that masking is something that is really common in autistic girls, which is why often they don't get diagnosed. And very often they'll kind of fit in seamlessly at school, and then when they get home, they will start to have meltdowns and start to really struggle because they put every single amount of effort that they have into being seen as normal at school, and then it all falls apart when they get home. And so their parents will kind of go to a pediatrician or a doctor or, or the mental health service um, and, and, and say that they're, they're worried about their daughter. But then when reports come in from the school, it will be, oh, she's all fine. And so I think often the parents get written off as um, a bit hysterical or, or sort of trying to, trying to label their child when it's not necessary. Um, but when the poor girl is really struggling. You mentioned that um, you struggled in school. Um, adults saw your behavior as the fact that you were just, you know, a bad child. As you grew up into young adulthood, how did that impact your decision making, Laura? I don't think I was very good at making decisions when I was um, when I was becoming a young adult for many reasons. Um, I I had had quite um, I'd had a really tough time, and I was quite bullied at school, and I was quite miserable, and. I don't think that I matured as quickly as um, my peers necessarily. And they had a very clear path. You know, they were going to go to college after school. They were going to go to university. They were going to do all of these things. And I didn't, I, I literally didn't graduate high school. So I didn't, um, I didn't have the ability to go on into further education or higher education. So um, I, I, I sort of muddled through and I kind of, sort of did a few jobs that I got fired from pretty quickly. Um, and then I um, ended up having a child very young and getting married very young and I think a lot of the reason for getting married so young was because I kind of thought it was sort of the done thing you know it, it you know it would make me a proper person um but also my um my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome had been misdiagnosed and I was given some drugs by um, a doctor which I took for quite a while and it, it turned out that they were incredibly addictive tranquilizers and so I ended up in rehab when I was quite young as well so it was all kind of a bit messy really to be honest by 45, how old were your children? And I'm curious about, you know, once you were diagnosed, did you then uh, wonder about your children as well? Uh, well, my children were quite, when I was 45, my eldest daughter was 26. And my youngest child would have been, I think, about 18. Um, 
And I, and I sort of, I, I was more worried about the physical side of things with my children because um, emotionally and mental health-wise and everything else, they were, they were all doing fine. I mean, you know, we're, we're all a bit neurodivergent, I think, in my house in some way or other. One of my children is halfway through being assessed for ADHD, although he kind of got bored halfway through the assessment and hasn't finished it. And that was about a year ago. Um, but they're all kind of, you know, doing their own thing and they're all very happy. Um, my youngest child had a lot of the physical symptoms that I had, so I was kind of more worried about him um, having EDS, which he was diagnosed with um, pretty much straight after I was. And uh, your husband today, how has that been uh, you know, going through this uh, journey with him? Well, I think it's been really interesting because um, when I first raised the idea of autism, I think he was very dismissive and like me, he'd bought into all of the stereotypes. And because Toby and I had had our EDS diagnosis and um, a couple of other things as well at the same time, I think he was a bit doctored out. And I think he was just a bit like, no more, I just can't take any more. Um, but then, um, then when I had my assessment, um, he started reading up about about it and became, I think, more understanding of me as a person. And then when I wrote my book, which is essentially, um, it's a memoir that covers a year, the year after my diagnosis, but it kind of goes backwards in time from childhood, you know, kind of right through to now. And I think that, you know, very few husbands have have that. Very few husbands get, get their wife to hand in 80,000 words that explains everything. And I think that that's been a really bonding experience because I think it's allowed him to see exactly who I am. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm talking with Laura James. Uh, she's joining us by phone from England. She's a journalist and author of the new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. Laura was diagnosed when she was 45 years old. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation and introduce you to an Enfield, Connecticut woman who's autistic and who is now a member of her town's school board. Do you have a family member on the spectrum? Were you diagnosed as an adult? You can join the conversation, too. We'll take your calls and questions after the break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about autism spectrum disorder with author Laura James. She, in her book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life, it comes out next year in the U.S., James writes, Quote, for much of my adult life, I've been searching for answers to why I'm not like other people. When James was 45, she finally got an answer. She was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, one of several disorders now classified under this collective term, autism spectrum disorder. Are you on the spectrum? When were you diagnosed? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Sarah Hernandez. Uh, she's a resident of Enfield, Connecticut, also newly elected member of the Board of Education in her town. Sarah, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much. Uh, so like us, uh, like Laura, who we've been speaking with, you too were diagnosed with autism as an adult. Uh, when did this happen? So it actually happened about a year ago. I was 37 years old when I received my formal diagnosis. Now, what made you get the diagnosis? Sure. I was, uh, I had self-diagnosed for many years. Um, I actually you know, knew something was a little bit different um, always growing up. And then um, I went, as an adult, I returned to school in my 30s for occupational therapy. And uh, getting into that, we learned a lot about individuals that are on the spectrum. And as I was doing uh, my coursework, I realized that everything that I was reading, I uh, resonated with. I, I really identified with it. Um, and so then I started to realize that perhaps I was on the spectrum. So I dug in, did a little more research, um, looked at available literature uh, to see what was out there, and realized, oh my word, I actually 
am on the spectrum, but I felt like um, I needed the formal diagnosis because I wanted to really get out there and um, engage in advocacy for individuals on the spectrum. And so for me, it was important to know for sure. Uh, like Laura, you said that you knew you were different as a child. Mm-hmm. Tell us uh, what what things you went through and what questions you had. Sure. So growing up um, and you know throughout all of my life, I think one of the things that was um, an interesting for me uh, was more the sensory experiences. Um, I was very sensitive to uh, to sound, to touch. Um, you know, different things were very difficult, and I would have I, you know what people would term as a meltdown. Um, I term it as dysregulation. It was just too much information all at once, and I wasn't able to kind of process through that. Um, and you know, there were times where I would misread social cues. Um, I uh, perceived relationships to be different, you know, friendships to be different than they were, um, very trusting, um, take people at their, you know, face value and, um, you know, really struggled, I think, making uh, strong connections. Um, my be- very best friends were people who I didn't have to guess with. Um, so people who are always honest and sometimes, you know, those people were, um, have more of like an aggressive kind of gruff personality, but I always knew where I stood with them. Um, so those are some of the, but I was also very academically um, invested. Like I, I just, I love learning um, and I would get really passionate and I would find a, a topic that I was interested in and just saturate myself with that. Um, Laura mentioned that uh, in her research and also something that she noticed as a child, um, being a young girl uh, with autism, she didn't know it at the time, uh, but she would try to mimic others mm-hmm. and to try to fit in. Mm-hmm. Is that what you did? Absolutely. Um, I love uh, anything in any movies, and I would watch movies over and over. And then um, I actually, throughout my childhood and a young adult life, uh, would go into theater. And that was actually, now I understand that that was really beneficial for me because then, you know, I could kind of get into a role and get, get into a headspace and, and practice that. And I would take a lot of cues from movies. I would take a lot of cues from um, my, my work in the theater. So having to do improv mm-hmm. and get, be given that situation and how would you react and respond to that, um, that was a, very helpful for me growing up. You said that you decided that you were going to – you saw through your own research that maybe you're on the spectrum. You mm-hmm. decided to get this formal diagnosis. As an adult, how do you go through that process? Because we know in the United States – I know that you're also a mother – there's mm-hmm. a lot of screening of young children to right. find out if they're on the spectrum. But if you're an adult – who is it that can give you this diagnosis? Is it easy to find a clinician? Not at all. Um, when I would approach people, they would tell me, uh, you know, I would call uh, diagnostic um, centers and they would say that they only worked with children. Um, so it was actually a, real, a struggle. Thankfully, being in the, the world I am, um, I had some good connections and I was able to ask around to different therapists and ask if they knew psychiatrists who could diagnose, ask if they knew any therapists who could diagnose and who would be willing to work with somebody um, who was on the spectrum. But it took me about eight months to find somebody who was willing to um, work with me and potentially uh, to explore if that was appropriate for the diagnosis. And how were you screened? Because again, the uh, emphasis is on how do you assess a child, Mm -hmm. talking to the child's parent or caregiver to notice behaviors. But as an adult, by now you've, you said you've been coping with this Mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. You've probably, um, have you compensated for certain challenges? So how do they know? So they went through, it was a standardized assessment called the ADOS, and they also um, do that with children as well, but there is an adolescent and an adult version. And so we went through uh, 
um, not just interview about talking about, you know, my ex- my life experiences, but then um, completing a standardized assessment. And uh, per the standardized assessment, I was I'm very much on the spectrum. So, <laughs> Laura James is also with us again uh, from uh, on the phone from England. She's a journalist and author of the new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. Uh, Laura, you were also diagnosed at 45. Uh, tell, walk us through what the UK has in terms of screening adults who are on the spectrum. I think it's incredibly difficult. The waiting times for autism assessments here, even for children, run um, upwards of two years. So, um, so it is very hard. Um, and we have um, a system here where obviously we kind of have our NHS service, um, but we also um, some people also have private medical insurance, and there are private centres here where um, where adults can get assessed. But it is really hit and miss, and it is it's an incredibly unfair system. John's calling from Glastonbury. John, go ahead with your comment or question. Good morning. I just wanted to thank you for uh, having this on and, and how important it is for people to know about it. I, as a child, people thought there was always something different about me. I had teachers tell me they thought I had epilepsy as a child because I seemed to daydream. Um, but it also, unfortunately, left me open for both verbal, uh, psychological, and sexual abuse. Uh, It wasn't until I joined the military and then later married and couldn't get promoted that they finally diagnosed me. Um, I've had medication to help me regulate my moods, but uh, other than that, I I just work day to day and uh, I see the difference in myself between others and and what we would quote as normal people. But uh, bringing it out into the public would only help make it better. So uh, I commend you for making this the public. Thank you, John, for your call. I wanted to ask, once you found out that you were also on the spectrum, were you relieved? And how did um, people close to you respond? Um, I knew that something was wrong. Um, I was actually kind of ashamed by it because at the time I was in the military and expected to, to get myself promoted and couldn't do it. And then I found out that my oldest child was also autistic, and it was funny. Uh, a couple of your, one of your guests mentioned that she's in theater, and he is thriving in a theater community because of his. And he was diagnosed as a young child with Asperger's, but I knew at a young age that there were things about him that were just a little bit different. He had the same kinds of sensitivities that I did towards people, and uh, was more open to other people to the point of making himself a target. Well, John, thank you for your call, and thank you. We're glad to hear that your son is thriving in the theater. I wanted to get our guest's response to John's story. Uh, First, Laura, um, he mentioned stigma. Is that something that, since your book has come out in the UK, Odd Girl Out Again, My Extraordinary Autistic Life, have you heard from other adults who've had had that same experience? Yes, many. Um, It's amazing. My book came out here um, last um, last March, and pretty much every day I get messages or emails or you know, kind of social media um, things from people. And so many of them are about people who say that they felt that they couldn't tell anybody about it because they felt it was such a stigma. And I think part of the problem that we have um, culturally is that there just aren't that many autistic women particularly out there. So I don't think that we, that we have any touch points where we can kind of compare ourselves to other people. And I think that's quite isolated. 
isolating. And I think that, that alongside the fact that there is a lot of um, misinformation out there can make it incredibly hard. So, so it can make it incredibly hard to come out and tell your story. But also I think it can make it incredibly isolating and lonely from people, for people who have simply recently got an, an adult diagnosis. Sarah Hernandez, again, she's an Enfield, Connecticut resident. She's in studio with me, also newly elected to the Board of Education. Congratulations Thank you. on that election. Thank you. How did your husband respond? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, my, I've, we've been uh, together for 18 years, and he was actually the person that I was most nervous to tell um, because of the stigma, uh, because, you know, I, I looked at him and I'm like, well, you have an autistic wife. And, you know, because around... <laughs> The stigma was challenging for me, um, but he is the most amazing man um, that I've, well, I love my dad too. Love you, dad. But I I love my husband, and he is just so, um, he said, you are the same today as you were yesterday and as the person that I fell in love with and that I am still in love with. And um, so that was really comforting for me because when I got the diagnosis, it was very, it was almost... It was like a gentle framework around some of these the issues and struggles that I had been having. Um, and so it was actually very relieving for me. But then I realized, well, wow, I need to tell my friends and family. Um, but thankfully, I ha- have an excellent support, and, and they were wonderful. Laura James, in your book, you write, your husband, Tim, said that it's as if I've been on the same date for 20 years. <laughs> Your diagnosis with uh, spectrum spectrum disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and how he reacted. Yeah, I think I think it was a really confusing a confusing thing to say. I think that um, one of the things about the way that I am, and it's and it's very difficult to tell how much of something is your personality, how much of it is the autism, how much of it is your upbringing and your kind of life experience, but um, but I'm really kind of really straight and really honest in all of my communication um, with my husband and and with pretty much with everybody. But I think that he sort of I think he's always thought there would be some something hidden, something kind of that I'm not saying, because I think that's his experience of kind of women before we got together. And so, yeah, so I think that he find I think he finds me a bit of an enigma, and that's where the first date thing came from. What about, we've heard, um, we heard from our caller, we've touched on the genetic link. So once you found out that you were on the spectrum, I'll turn my question to Sarah, who's in the studio with me. Um, were you then concerned that you needed to test your your child as well? And do you know people in your family that that have autism and things started to make sense? Sure. You know, I look through my family, I look at my child, and, and I ha- I do have some of those questions. Um, and, you know, my son especially is brilliant, and he sees connections um, between, you know, patterns and behaviors. And um, that actually was really helpful for me because if he is on the spectrum, I don't know that he is, but he might be, um, you know, seeing how... how it's just it's such a strength for him and he's um you know but then also being gentle to to the fact that he does struggle also with some sensory issues and um you know it just makes me more uh open to sitting and be and holding space with him through those um because i understand i understand how difficult it is for me and i would want that same grace extended to me if i was struggling and so it makes me more likely to extend that same grace to him
You wanted to be public about being on the spectrum um, while you were campaigning mm-hmm. and running for the Enfield Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did people perceive you when you that you told them that you were autistic? They look at you, what do you mean? Right. I have to say that the um, in Enfield, Connecticut, the people who I spoke with about it were so supportive. They were they were excited um, because you know in the disability community, one a phrase that we say is nothing about us without us, and so it's really important to have representation for people who have disabilities um, to not just have a voice or an opinion on a matter, but to have a seat at the table. And I think that um, because of the advocacy work of so many people before me, um, people in Enfield really recognized why that was important. And so they embraced it. And um, the the support was really positive. Uh, What about uh, parents who have uh, young children with autism when they meet you? How do they react? Um, So interestingly, Previous to running, I was an early intervention specialist, and I worked with a lot of parents um, when their children were first receiving those diagnoses. And it was very helpful um, to share my diagnosis with them because at the time it feels very overwhelming, especially when you have a young child who maybe is struggling with communication, struggling with dysregulation and behaviors, and um, just seeing uh, the path that you know that their child can take, um, and and just kind of drawing, you know, you get so in the moment, um, just seeing the future seems almost impossible, but talking more about adults who are on the spectrum and, and, you know, what has helped us to be successful in life um, helps reframe for parents. Um, And so in my community, I've had many parents who have approached me whose children are on the spectrum, and they've been very grateful. Um, And even uh, just to have conversations with their children, if their children are adolescents, saying, hey, like, this is what's possible for you, and, you know, how can we help support you in your goals? Um, because these are the things that you can do. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Sarah Hernandez, an Enfield, Connecticut resident, also newly elected to her town's Board of Education. Sarah, as well as our guest uh, from England, Laura James, uh, an author and journalist, both women were diagnosed um, when they were adults with having autism spectrum disorder. Uh, You mentioned support, Sarah. I wanted to uh, ask Laura, uh, before you wrote this book and once you had your diagnosis, uh, how did you seek out support on social media? with other adults with similar stories? Well, when I, when I began to suspect that I might be autistic, I did find a Facebook group for um, women in the UK who, um, who either were diagnosed or self-diagnosed. And I think one of the interesting things about the autism community is that there are many, many self-diagnosed people who um, are an important and really valuable part of the community. And often people will self-diagnose before they go on to get an official diagnosis. So, and, and plus, as we've talked about before, diagnosis can be really quite tricky to, um, to get. And assessments can be quite difficult to get. Um, and I just found it really amazing. I sort of um, suddenly found that there was this whole kind of group of people out there that really got me. And it was just incredibly, incredibly valuable. Let's talk about the misconceptions. Uh, before the show, I told Laura I saw a YouTube video that she did where she talked about five misconceptions about someone with autism. Uh, Laura, you're a journalist. You're obviously a great communicator. Are people surprised to learn that you're on the spectrum? And walk us through some of the misconceptions that you hear with someone who might have autism. Okay, well, I th- yeah, I, I think people are really surprised um, until they learn a bit more about it. Um, but initially, yes, because most people have bought into the stereotypes because that's all we ever see, really. And they, those stereotypes are that, you know, that autistic people are generally men or boys, that they're generally quite geeky, quite into IT, very good at maths, 
can do extraordinary things like kind of go up in a helicopter and immediately draw the New York skyline from memory, um, that they have no desire at all to socialize in any context, that you can't be married, that you can't be a mother, that you um, that either that you're, you have genius level intelligence or that you have such severe learning difficulties that you find um, everything a struggle. And so I think that those are the kind of the things that we generally see out there about autism in the media, um, in film, in TV, um, in fiction. Mm. Sarah, some of the mm. misconceptions that, that you've heard people have of autism. I agree. And um, sharing my diagnosis, some people would say um, that they disagreed with my diagnosis because I was so effective at communicating. I'm, I'm a professor as well, and so literally it's my job to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was the thought that maybe, you know, I shouldn't be that or I shouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, one thing about autism is that it is a spectrum disorder, and I think that it's really important for us to highlight the uh, diversity between us and, you know, not in a, a higher, like a hierarchy of, you know, less and more, but really that we all have different ways that we uh, communicate and we can contribute. Uh, We talked earlier about in the United States that the screening has um, become, there's very much an emphasis on screening young children to find out if they have autism spectrum disorder. Uh, I'm curious about uh, what supports, uh, do you want to see more funding to help adults with autism spectrum disorder? I'll go to you first, Sarah. Sure. I would love to see more vocational supports. I know personally, um, you know, having, being in school was a, was wonderful for the structure, for the routine, expected um, behaviors, expectation, expectations of me. And going into uh, work as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, that was really difficult because it was it was difficult for me to navigate the social expectations. And I would misread social cues. Um, and I really needed some type of scaffolded support to kind of help me process through, you know, what uh, were appropriate interactions between my coworkers or, you know, what... Um, not to get lost in my own head about, you know, because I can analyze. I'll you know, like, what do they mean by that? Do they, and I get caught up in that. And so it would have been very helpful for me to have somebody to support through processing um, the social expectations of my work. Um, and what now, as you know, I'm in my 30s, and I do that pretty well, and I and I have developed those skills. But I would have uh, I would have benefited from having vocational support. Uh, Laura, in your book, you 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 talk about how you ask the question to yourself, "Why am I autistic?" Uh, have you gotten an answer to that question? Well, <laughs> no, um, but I think that from all of the experts that I interviewed and all of the autistic people I've spoken to, and all of the research I've done, I mean, I think that you know autism is genetic, so it's kind of you know it, it's it's one of those things that was was probably probably pretty much always going to have happened. Um, and I think that there there is definitely a link between EDS and autism. Um, and I think that I would probably like to see some some more um, research into that. I, I feel very strongly that autism isn't something that we should be looking for a cure for. And I certainly think it would be really wrong to screen out, like you know, to try and screen out autism, because I think that it's a really important difference. And I think that um, we, you know, we kind of add a lot to the kind of human mix. But um, but in terms of um, in in terms of research, I think I you know I agree um, that I think we should be researching and spending money on making life easier. I mean, in the UK, ninety six percent of autistic adults are unemployed. 
and these people who want to work and it's just really unfair but a lot of the reason why they can't get into the workplace are for the things that Sarah was talking about you know they, they don't un- you know because they might not understand kind of how to deal with the social aspect of work and I know that that was a really big problem for me so I think if we had those kind of supports and also support in helping people um, navigate relationships which I think can be difficult particularly for girls and particularly for young autistic girls um, I think that can be quite hard and if we had those supports in place then I think that that's that's where we need to kind of direct our attention and our funding. We're talking about with the two women who were diagnosed as adults with autism spectrum disorder. But Jabriel is calling from Windsor. Go ahead with your comment or question. Hi, my I have some comments. I was diagnosed at age 32. I'm right now 36. And uh, it's very refreshing to hear about this topic of adults with autism because we often hear about children and um it's also very refreshing to hear from two women because, you know, oftentimes they pay attention to boys, but not, you know, women who struggle with it, too. On a personal level, I struggle with, you know, my marriage. I struggle with with jobs. I struggle with communication with my family. So it has been a very hard adjustment process, and I understand what you mean by not having that scaffolding, that support, you know, because I'm I'm unemployed right now you know, as an autistic man, and, and there are so many misunderstandings, and people look at me and say, well, you don't look autistic, or or they say, well, you're high-functioning, but, you know, what does that even mean? Well, Jabriel, well, we're glad to hear that you call in to tell us a little bit of your story. We're going to actually talk about this label um, that people throw around, high-functioning, uh, but I am curious, you said that you're unemployed. You just learned uh, just a couple years ago that you're on the spectrum, um, on the autism spectrum disorder. I'm just curious, what supports would you like to see in your community? Well, I would like to see some support as for adults with autism. And that those expectations, communications and social expectations that are there for, you know, the job in the in the in the workplace, um, there are certain initiatives that I just that I just won't take because I don't have those social skills and those communication skills. And I need that extra hand to, especially in the job search, especially trying to find jobs that would fit in, you know, best with my abilities and and qualities. Well, thank you again for your call and good luck to you. You're welcome. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, today, two of our guests, uh, two women who were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when they were adults. Coming up, we're going to hear from a parent of an autistic child. In many societies, including our own, labeling is commonplace. But is it helpful? In the case of Amber Underhill, she's grown tired of her child being described as high-functioning. We'll hear why after the break. Now, are you also the parent of a child with autism? We want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today, we've been talking about autism. Two of our guests were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when they were adults. If you're a child, parent of a child with autism, what do you want people to know? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our next guest wrote a Facebook post about how others view her daughter who has autism. Uh, Amber Underhill, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Now, tell us about your daughter um, and when she was diagnosed. Um, Chandler was officially diagnosed um, I would say about nine or ten months ago. Um, she's four years old. Um, but I think 
from about the age of two, um, we kind of realized um, what was going on with her. It was just a really long process getting the help that we needed to get her diagnosed. Um, now that you, she's been diagnosed, uh, you said it was a process. Um, are you on a good path? Do you feel like you have enough support now? Um, we do have a lot of help. She's in a, a special um, education school. Um, she gets uh, six therapy sessions a week. Um, she sees a developmental pediatrician every month. Uh, we're working on updating her IEP, so she'll also get one-on-one counseling as well. Um, so we're we're on a good path, but we're we're still hoping to get more help. In your Facebook post, uh, you wrote, "I've heard the term high functioning a lot here lately, in reference to Chandler, and I hate it." Upon learning that she's autistic, people will say things like, well, at least she's high functioning. And I really feel like that term is misleading. Uh, uh, explain that to us, because I'm sure many of our listeners have have heard that. We'll, we'll hear someone classified as high functioning. Uh, maybe uh, that's something they've even said. Why is this uh, um, frustrating for you? Uh, it's frustrating because um, when someone meets Chandler, maybe for just a few minutes out at a shop or you know, we're getting groceries or something like that. And she's behaving, I guess, what they would consider normally. Um, They just go, oh, okay, well, at least she's high functioning and assume this is indicative of our daily life. And it isn't. Mm. Um, Walk us through some of the, the, when you say your daily life, some of the the struggles that you have um, and the challenges uh, that people don't know. uh, We kind of make a joke that um, every day is like Groundhog Day. (laughs) And every day is exactly the same. It has to be exactly the same. Her life is very scripted. And if you go off that script, she can't handle it. She falls apart. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of meltdowns, a lot of biting, a lot of hitting, a lot of screaming. (laughs) It's it's very difficult for us. Um, since you wrote that Facebook post, uh, Amber, have you heard from other parents? Have you heard from people who may not have known any better and said, you know what, I would never thought about that that term just doesn't encompass your daughter and I shouldn't be using it? Um, I don't think anyone has really necessarily reached out to us about, about the term high-functioning. Um, but I'm hoping that it at least brought awareness to the people around us that maybe that's not something that they should use, high-functioning, low-functioning, just because you see she's intelligent and assume that means she's not struggling Mm -hmm. because she is. Things are very difficult for her. You don't see what goes on at home. You don't see her, you know, falling apart, screaming in the corner and biting herself because I accidentally filled her cup the wrong way. I wanted to get reaction from our other guests. Uh, first, I'll start with Laura James, who wrote the new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Autistic Life. This label of high functioning, uh, it can be problematic. I think it can, um, and because I don't think anybody um, of any neurotype fits into a box that neatly. You know, on the one hand, as I say, I didn't graduate high school. I have literally no qualifications at all. I didn't even have a swimming badge because I didn't manage to do any of those things. Um, but then, you know, I've written nine books and I'm, I have a successful career as a journalist. 
And if you, and talking to me now, you'd say I was extremely high functioning. But if you saw me yesterday when I didn't manage to get dressed, I didn't manage to feed myself for the whole day, and I literally just sat there um, looking at my computer screen, obsessively researching something, not speaking to anyone around me. Or if you see me when I have to get on a plane and I become completely nonverbal. Or like your other guests are saying, you know, if something in my routine changes and I'm not expecting it to change, then, you know, you, you wouldn't think I was high-functioning at all. And so I'm not sure that the term is helpful for anybody. Equally, somebody who would be described as low-functioning may have um, some amazing skills and may be written off and, and thought of um, differently simply because that label's been attached to them. So, yeah, I think it's really unhelpful. Sarah, uh, you're a mother. You're, you're newly elected to your town's Board of Education. How do schools, do schools use this label when they see children on the spectrum? Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, I resonate with what Laura said about, you know, we don't fit into a box. And the terms um, apply suggest that we are static beings and we're not, we're dynamic. And our experiences, um, you know, kind of are, are differing day to day or even within the day. Um, and I don't like it because for me, in my opinion, it, like I said, it places us on a hierarchy. And as if, you know, if I'm high functioning, oh, at least I'm high functioning. And then all of a sudden people who would be termed as low functioning um, in some ways are perceived as being worthless. And I don't like that because these are my brothers and sisters in my tribe. And, you know, I don't, they are just as valuable and they are just as worthy of support. Um, and, you know, words matter and the way that we describe ourselves matter. Um, and so even if you describe somebody as high functioning, that places an expectation that we can't fall apart. And that, or suddenly I have to reveal my trauma and my difficulties to you in order to like say, no, no, you know, this is, and that's my personal information um, that, you know, necessary. I don't necessarily need to share with you. Um, but, you know, there's like, for example, uh, Carly Fleischman, who is a journalist and she is nonverbal for many, many years, was perceived as being low functioning. And now she's interviewing Chan Channing Tatum and she's hysterical. Mm -hmm. um, and what kind of uh, impact can that have on a, an individual if you? say, well, you're low functioning, well, then, uh, of course, maybe then they say, well, that's who I am. And they really absorb and internalize that. Um, so I, I don't find the labels helpful because um, I think that it's important to let us uh, discover our path and where and see where it leads. You heard a little bit of Amber Underhill's story again. Mm -hmm. um, her daughter um, has autism. Do you have any advice for her? Amber, um, I first I applaud you for just speaking out and, and advocating for your daughter and, and really kind of um, being sensitive to her needs. And one thing that I say, you know, just from my perspective, um, you talking about how routine is also very important to me and routine is uh, very important to Chandler. And um, one thing, the structure for me personally, it's not because um, I, I need things one way. It's because I see so many variables in the things that could happen that having one direct path gives me comfort because once I go off of that, then it's, you know, oh, this could happen, this could happen. But for interestingly for me, that's what makes me um, excel at research because when I see like one path to something, automatically my mind goes to all the other potential things that could happen. And as a child, that caused a lot of anxiety for me. Um, but as an adult, I've been able to kind of harness that um, and turn it into, I'm currently uh, earning my PhD um, and with a strong research focus um, because I do see so many potentials. Mm -hmm. 
Laura James uh, is also with us. Uh, she's the author of the bo- new book, Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Artistic Life. Laura, we just have uh, a couple of minutes. Your advice to parents? I think that um, it, I think that it's really important, if possible, to try and allow the child to make as many decisions for themselves as they can. So, for example, um, and not to kind of worry about the small stuff, you know, if if they don't want to eat a certain thing, then, you know, it is not, it is not the end of the world. I'm, my, I had a lot of food issues with my parents growing up um, because they felt it was very important that I would eat what they were giving me. But the fact is, I think it's more important that a child eats generally rather than, than necessarily what they eat if it's going to be that difficult. And so giving them as, as much agency as possible, allowing them to try and to kind of find their, find their own way in the world and make their own choices, I think is important. I think it's really important... Um, to make sure that you don't necessarily put your ideals onto them. So, for example, I, I see parents who, um, or, or I talk to autistic adults whose parents tried to make them socialise when they didn't really want to socialise, but equally they might want to get involved in a special interest. And if a parent can develop an interest in whatever the child is into, then I think that can make a really huge difference when it comes to bonding. And then just being alive to sensory issues. You know, the flickering light might not bother you, but it might be almost like a physical assault to, to a child. And Laura, and Laura, we'll have to leave it there. We're almost out of time. But Laura James, author of Odd Girl Out, My Extraordinary Artistic Life, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Also, Amber Underhill, a parent of a child with autism spectrum disorder. We're going to tweet out a link to that uh, that blog, that Facebook post. Uh, thank you so much. And, and also Sarah Hernandez, an Enfield, Connecticut resident. Thank you for joining the show today. Thank you. Our senior producer, Lydia Brown, produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.